you have your Bibles, please join me and open it to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And we'll study from verse 3. Lord willing, we have a few sermons left in this book, in 1 Timothy. And then Christmas this year falls on a Monday, so we won't have a Monday morning service. We'll only have the Sunday 24th of December service. And then we'll look at, definitely do a Christmas service there as well. But until then, we are working our way through this letter, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, as we seek to study it, what it says for us. But we'll actually start reading from the end of verse 2. Some of your Bibles will have the heading just above verse 3. So let's read from just the end of verse 2 up until verse 10. And this is the reading of God's Word. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you. We ask for your mercy and your help. Please open our eyes to see the glories of your word. Free our hearts from the love of money. Teach us the secret of true contentment and godliness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we look at this section together, I want to show you how Paul has structured 1 Timothy. Because the themes he has picked up here, he has said already in chapter 1. So just briefly look with me to chapter 1 verse 3. And I'm going to read from verse 3 to 7 and see how many of the same themes he brings up again. He says, As I urge you, Timothy, when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. And then verse 5, the aim of our charge is love. Verse 6, certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they are conf make confident assertions. So do you see the similarity between chapter 1 and chapter 6? But in chapter 1, the main point was this. They were saying it's all about the law. They were teachers of the law. They wanted to say it's all about what you do. But Paul says, no, it's not about all, what, all that you do. It's all about what Christ has done. Christ came to save sinners of whom Paul was the foremost, remember? So although the, there are similarities, the emphasis in chapter 6 shifts, not from everything you must do, but from everything you have, possessions, greed, love of money. So now the message was, it's all about what you have. Chapter 1, the problem was legalism, trying to be good enough for God. Chapter 6, the problem is materialism, seeing how much you can hoard 
But no, Paul says it's not about all the things you have. It's all about what you get when Christ returns. So in essence, the solution to legalism is Christ's first coming. He came to save us from our sins. And the problem of materialism is Christ's second coming. It's all about what we get when he returns. In other words, it is the doctrines of grace and the doctrine of glory that we need to free us from our own self-righteousness and from all the possessions we try to accumulate. Neglect these two, the doctrines of grace or the doctrines of glory, and you will go astray from true Christianity. So Paul now tells us, he outlines for us marks of false teachers. What are you to look out for to see if they are true or false? But he also gives us the solution. He gives us godliness with contentment and shows us how we should live our lives. And now this is what every true shepherd will do. They won't just show the sheep where the green pastures are. They will also warn the sheep of the wolves in sheep's clothing and say, look out for the wolves that try to steal from you and not teach you the truth. False teachers are teaching heterodox theology. They are arrogant, they are divisive, and they are lovers of money, covetous. Those are the four marks that we will look at in this sermon. So the first mark of a false teacher is that they teach heterodox teaching. They are heterodox. Look at the end of chapter 6, at the end of verse 2. Paul says to Timothy, teach and urge these things. A true teacher takes the word of God, the apostolic deposit, and just teaches that faithfully. But they won't do just teaching. It says teach and urge these things. To urge someone is to give someone a holy hips to it. Okay? It is to say, come on, you know what the Bible says, now do it. You see, it's teaching and preaching. Command and teach these things. Charles Spurgeon said, where the application begins, that's where the sermon begins. And we don't just hear the truth and we nod our heads or our hat, tip our hats to the truth. We also love the truth, embrace the truth, and seek to do the truth. That's our attitude. But immediately after he said to Timothy, teach and urge these things, he contrasts that with the false teachers in verse 3. He says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. Do you see, different doctrine in the Greek is literally heterodidaskalo, a different doctrine, a different teaching than the one that we have in the scriptures. It is to deviate from the teaching of Jesus or the teaching of the apostles. They, false teachers, love novelty. They love new things, new truths, new mysteries that goes beyond Scripture. And they love to teach that to people who have itching ears. Beloved, be careful of the many ways this is done by so-called pastors and teachers. Very few pastors will say, I don't agree with Jesus. For the moment they say that, half of their audience will leave, right? The devil doesn't come to us often as a dragon, but as a serpent. He comes to us disguised as an angel of the light. And it is no surprise that his servants also disguise themselves as, as teachers of light. No, they come to you and say, yes, Jesus said, but... Or they simply teach what is directly contradicted by the Bible. A classic example of this would be Kenneth Copeland trying to justify his lavish lifestyle 
on earth by twisting what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6. When Jesus said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And Kenneth Copeland said, well, nowhere does it say we cannot make an early withdrawal, right? Or others deny the word by subtly redefining the terms. Jesus is raised from the dead, but not physically. He's only raised, it's a spiritual resurrection. I believe in the resurrection of Christ. Or yes, the Bible is infallible, but not inerrant. The biggest way Jesus' words are discarded is sometimes not by pastors at all, but by our culture, by pop teachers of, of society. Jesus said, for example, you are evil. Under the wrath of God, all of your sins come from your own wicked heart. You are evil. You are bad. But what do we hear in every Disney movie? Every, every song is about how amazing you are, how good you are, how perfect you are. You are loved and special just the way you are. Don't let anybody try to change you. Or take his apostles. Often the, his apostles are disregarded by saying, no, Paul was a chauvinist. That's why he had these teachings on men and women in the church. Or maybe that was only for that context. It wasn't for our day today. And you see how many ways there are of taking the words of the scriptures and saying it does not apply to us. Therefore, beloved, the best antidote to false teaching is to feed on the Bible itself, to Consume good teaching. Know your Bibles. Read it until you know it front and back. Don't consume more podcasts, more Christian books about the Bible than the Bible itself. Notice what we lose if we do not make the Bible our main diet in verse 3. I love the little word when it says the sound words of Jesus. Sound there literally means healthy. The healthy words of Christ. The teaching of Jesus and the teaching of the Bible heals you. Like a good physician, when Jesus tells you you are evil, he's diagnosing the cancer that he can take out by his grace. He is the good physician. And Christ himself is the healer. I want to ask a trick question. Did Jesus preach the gospel? And if so, what did he preach? Because some people are critics of that and say, well, how could Jesus preach the gospel if the gospel is the cross of Christ, but Jesus wasn't crucified yet? So how could he have preached the gospel if he wasn't on the cross yet? Well, if you read the Bible, Jesus preached himself. He said, I am the bread of life. Whoever eats of me, whoever believes in me will never hunger. It was Jesus who said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall never perish but have eternal life. Christ was the only man who can preach himself and not be arrogant because he is the way, the truth, and the life. He is God in the flesh, the only one that can save us. So false teachers will be novel or simply present alternatives to what the Bible says. They will be heterodox. But the second mark that you should look out for false teachers is they will be arrogant. Arrogant. Look at the, at the end of verse, of verse 4. He says, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. That's a very ironic thing to say. They are puffed up with this in their conceit, in their proud. Right? It's like you get the picture of a man that is wrapped up in the smoke of all of his self-importance and just the slightest wind blows and you realize he's naked. Yeah, there's nothing. The emperor has no clothes. 
They sound impressive, but they know nothing. Now, the point is not that they are unintelligent. Rather, they know nothing of eternal value. To reject Christ is the follies of all folly. For to reject him is to reject life, the creator, the Messiah. The Old Testament wisdom agrees. Proverbs 1 verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of, of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. If you don't fear the Lord, you haven't even begun to understand anything of importance. Psalm 14 verse 1 says, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are arrogant as they are ignorant. There are many with PhDs who knows nothing of eternal value. And there are many ordinary people who know very little in terms of intelligence, who love Christ and submit to him, who are wiser than the wisest or the most learned man on earth. In verse 2, the first will be last and the last will be first. Therefore, beloved, you may know a false teacher when you consider their arrogance when they love to talk about themselves when every illustration they are the hero of the story where there is praise lavished on the pastor and he does not give the glory to god you have spotted one of the deadly marks of a false teacher now true this is a human tendency to want to elevate pastor above jesus even in the early church people were followers of paul and followers of apollos and they they and they had their favorite Bible teachers, right? But Paul, listen to how Paul responded to that attitude. I love his humble, beautiful attitude in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 5. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. True pastors are worms. We are unworthy servants who deserve to go to hell for our sins. Yet God saved pastors in grace and chose them and called them to the pastorate. It was not any man who did that. And if you are growing in your Christian life, if you're growing in your knowledge, if you are saved in any way, that is not because of any man. It's because of God. He gets all the glory. He makes it grow in you. True pastors are like John the Baptist who points away from themselves and says, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It is pastors that say he must increase and I must decrease. So mark it down. False teachers are heterodox, but they are also arrogant. A third mark of a false teacher is they will be divisive. Divisive. Look at verses 4 to 5. It says, he has an unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Look at the contrast. He says, since they've rejected the sound words, the healthy words, now they have an unhealthy craving for controversy. If you reject broccoli, you love junk food. Okay, that there's a correlation there. They have a sickly desire for arguing. They will not major on the things the Bible majors, they will major on the minors. They will like to talk about the words, quarrel about words, word battles, that just doesn't matter. They would love that more than sound teaching and good theology. They love to talk about how 
the churches have got one word wrong. While ignoring the great big truths of Christ coming to us, saving us, heaven and hell, the gospel, the lost, missions, missing the whole point. Now, of course, it's not wrong to desire accurate definitions of words, but the problem here is that they enjoy the fight. They ask questions for the goal of arguing. And since they rejected healthy doctrine, the first casualty is their thinking processes. Look at verse 5, where it says they are depraved in mind. The word mind there refers to your thinking, your mental cap cap capabilities. The thinking system is not working well. They are full of, it's full of bugs, full of viruses. You're not thinking clearly if you've rejected God and Christ and the Bible. The Bible teaches that people don't have an intellectual problem when it comes to the truth. They have a moral problem. They hate the light and they love the darkness. That's why they reject truth. So they are depraved, but there's also been a robbery in verse 5. The ESV says they are deprived of the truth. I like the NIV here. Literally, they have been robbed of the truth. One person wrote this. These church leaders have mugged the church family, taking from their possessions the words of Jesus as well as material riches. No greater theft can be contemplated. So since they rob people of truth and so their minds are depraved, look at the results in verse 4. Right? It produces... Um, produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction. People become jealous of one another because the goal is no longer to glorify God and know Christ. The goal is how much knowledge you have. So then there's envy about how much you know in contrast to how much I know. It's a competition. This jealousy leads to dissension and slander. People badmouth one another, start to gossip behind each other's back, and that leads to evil suspicions. They become paranoid about people's motives. People suddenly become expert mind readers. I always find it so interesting when someone tells me, that person is so full of himself. It's like, how do you know? Just, just look at him. It's like, wow, suddenly there's been an angelic revelation of that person's mind and heart, and you suddenly are the best readers of motives. Oh, the only reason that person says that is because of this. It's like, how do you know? You don't know people's hearts. Without solid evidence, we should never assume the worst of people. We should take their words at face value and examine those. The saddest thing that happens is there will be a lot of infighting amongst one another. There's constant friction, almost like an engine that doesn't have enough oil. The parts are moving, but it's, 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 fric it's rubbing against each other in the wrong way, right? It, there's no grace, there's no patience, there's no forbearance, there's no kindness, there's no other fruit of the Spirit. By that you will know a false teacher. Look at their character, their arrogance and what they produce, and, and their lives. I remember when we were back in our old church in Pretoria, there was a man that made a lot of bad accusations against our pastor. He was saying things like, the pastor isn't saved. And I was dragged into that time, and I, I remember not knowing what the truth is. And I remember Jesus' words when he says, look at a tree, and you will know a tree by its fruit. So I considered this man's marriage and my pastor's marriage. And the two were diametrically opposed. This man with his wife was constantly fighting, constantly arguing. There was no love and peace and unity between them. And I look at my pastor's marriage, and his marriage was beautiful. The way he served his wife, the way he sacrificed and laid down his life for his wife. And by that I knew which one is the false and which one is the true. 
and I decided to back my pastor. So that's what you look for in false teachers. Listen to what they teach. Is it heterodox or orthodox? Are they arrogant? Are they divisive? But lastly, and we'll spend the most of the time here because of the length of it, they are also covetous. They're also covetous. They are lovers of money, greedy for more. That's what verse 5 at the end says. It says, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Since they've rejected the vision that godliness is to be like Christ, they now promote a different vision. Godliness is to be wealthy. Godliness is to get more. Since they reject the sound words of Jesus, they probably would reverse the saying of Jesus when he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. They would have said it's more blessed to receive than to give. Simply put, wherever the gospel and godliness are mainly about making you and your life easier on earth, less sick, less poor, less struggling, you know you are in this category. Today's modern health and wealth preachers fall clearly into this category. They take all of the things which Jesus told us to be willing to let go of and make that the attraction of the gospel. If you believe in Christ, you will never be sick. If you have enough faith, if you give, give your money, then you will return tenfold. Costi Hinn, uh, the family member of Benny Hinn, made this beautiful summary of how th this works. It's a vicious cycle. Step one, tell people that if they have faith and sow a seed, and then they will be rich. Step two, take all the money they give you for yourself. Step three, use yourself as an example that it works. Look, I'm rich. It works. And step four, when it doesn't work for you, you don't have enough faith. Step five, repeat. Do you see the vicious cycle? It's easy to spot these false teachers. What are they talking about the most? What the heart is full of, the mouth overflows. If all they teach is about money and giving and living your best life now, and you are near a wolf, you need to flee. Well, thankfully, God doesn't just tell us what to avoid. He then gives us what our lives is to look like in verse 6. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Paul says, lest you get the wrong idea, godliness is great gain if it's accompanied by contentment. There are rich gains to be had if you are godly. Here Paul echoes chapter 4, verse 7 to 8. Look at chapter 4, verse 7. It says, nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather train yourself for godliness for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise, for the present life and also for the life to come. Do you see? Where's the focus of godliness? Yes, there's present benefits. I mean, the, all the fruit of the Spirit is benefits. Joy, peace, patience, kindness. That's a good life. But especially in the life to come. That's why godliness is so worth it. It's beneficial not just for your short 80 little years of life on earth, but the next 100 billion years to come when your eternity hasn't even begun. That's where the rewards are. So it's ironic. It is usually the false teachers who say things like this. Your thinking is too small. You're thinking poor. That's why you are poor. Stop thinking poor. Think rich. Think like a millionaire. But in reality, it is the false teachers who are thinking small. 
They are the small-minded, the small thinking. Why? Because they're only thinking of this puny little life here. They're missing all of eternity. Their lives are like a one grain of sand on the beach of eternity. What a foolish thing to do to invest everything in this life when there's eternity to come. To use the famous saying from C.S. Lewis, we are far too easily pleased. We are like children playing in the mud because we cannot imagine what is meant by a vacation at the sea. That's what God promises. He's, here's a vacation at the sea. Let go of your money. It's like, no, I want to keep it. I want, I want to hoard it. The difference is, of course, we get all of that when Jesus comes again. Not now. Now we suffer. Now we toil. Now we pick up our cross. But then we inherit everything. Matthew 5, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit what? The earth, the whole earth is ours when Christ returns. 1 Corinthians 3.21 Let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. You see, when you really believe that when Jesus comes back, you inherit everything, that frees your heart to cling to your possessions and your money. That is why greed, and I'm going to say the S word, is so stupid. Our children always say, you're not allowed to say that word. But here it is. Greedy, to be greedy is stupid. Paul lays down the logic in verse 7. He says, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. Our wealth is like little sandcastles which the tide of time will just wipe away. You were born with nothing and you take nothing with you. Death is like the airport that does not just say laptop out, clothes off, give me your car keys, give me your house keys, you leave everything behind, you're traveling naked. That is death. It takes everything from you. These words are the echo of Job's words. Remember when Job lost everything, he said in Job 1.21, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. Instead, here is the standard of true contentment in verse 8. It says, verse 8 says, But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Clothing can also be referred to as shelter or, or covering. So the idea is the basic necessities of life. So another reason for contentment is simply this. You already have enough. If you have food, if you have clothing, you have enough. Enough is enough. The sad thing about greed is that it often takes our desires, our wants, and turn them into needs. I need an iPhone. I need this new car. I need, and you have this internal justifier that always justifies whatever you buy. It says, but I needed this. No. You needed food and clothing and a house, <laughs> housing. If you have that, praise the Lord, you have enough. You don't need more than that. But our contentment only grows when you realize what you really need and what you really deserve from God. Listen to this quote from Jeremiah Burroughs. He says, A discontented heart is troubled because he has no more comfort, but a self-denying man rather wonders that he has as much as he has. Oh, says the one, I have but little. 
Yes, says the man who has learned this lesson of self-denial. But I rather wonder that God bestows on me the liberty of breathing in the air. Knowing how vile I am and knowing how much sin the Lord sees in me. Do you see? We deserve nothing but hell. That's what you and I deserve. What does God give us instead? The warm, 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 warm sun. <laughs> we had this conversation. Even this hot sun is, it's not hell. You are not in hell today. Thank God for that. Be glad. God is always treating you better than you deserve. But I asked this important question. What is the difference between Christian contentment and secular or worldly contentment? The Stoics and the Cynics also highly valued the virtue of contentment. But where they put the emphasis was on self-sufficiency. They would say, you have everything you need within yourself, independent from your circumstances. But Paul was no Stoic. He learned the secret of contentment in Philippians 4 verse 11. Listen to his learning. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through my self-sufficiency. Oh, wait, sorry. Misquoted. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. For Paul, it was not about self-sufficiency. It was about a Christ-sufficiency. He has all he needs in Christ for to me to live is Christ and to die is profit, money, gain, everything. If I die and lose everything and I just have Jesus, I have more than everything I lost. So to live is Christ. That is our wisdom. You see, the, what your heart really longs for is not for more stuff. How long does the, prism, the, the Christmas present joy last? Like normally a day. Right? Or the November Black Friday deal, right? And you get it and boom, it lasts a whole hour and the joy is gone. <laughs> but God never changes. Hebrews 13 verse 5 gives us another key. It says, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. You see what he's doing? He's shifting away your focus from what you have to whom you have. It's a focus away from stuff to a person, an eternal God that is everything we need. He will provide. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He works all things together for our good. So, beloved, spend more time meditating on everything you already have in the light of everything you deserve. Spend time on meditating on Christ and what he has done to save you. Spend time meditating on God's promises that he will never leave you nor forsake you. And then your heart will learn the secret of true contentment. Well, the last thing Paul mentions on contentment is to show where greed and discontentment leads in verses 9 to 10. He says, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that all have wandered away, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. 
Sadly, this has become one of the most misquoted verses in the Bible. Often people say, money is the root of all kinds of evils. Like, no, that's not. let's not twist the Bible to make a point. Okay? What does the Bible say? The love of money is the root of all evil. You see, it's all about your heart. Look at all the words that's about your heart here. In verse 9, he says, those who desire to be rich, they fall into sense of harmful desires. Verse 10, the love of money, it's through this craving. You see, that's the problem. It's not, a, it's not wrong to be rich. It's not, Paul is not against having possessions. Later in verses 17 to 19, he will give direct instructions to the rich. But the point is, if you desire to be rich, if your life's goal, if your life's aim is to be rich, you fall into this category. Well, you, you will take foolish risks. You will be full of harmful desires, full of temptation. A classic example I've heard of this is when a man was retired, he took all of his retirement money and invested it into cryptocurrency. <laughs> foolish, harmful desires, hurting himself, he lost it all. Or you are willing to take shortcuts, willing to break the rules, willing to take bribes, to just get one step ahead. But this twists your soul and you lose far more than you gain. Now, when, when verse 10 says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, it doesn't mean that every evil deed that, that happens on earth has money or the love of money behind it. For example, I don't think all adulteries are for the love of money. Rather, I think what is meant here is that the kind of heart that craves for money is the same heart that will do any evil in this world. It's, it's, it's synonymous and that's why verse 10 shows the sad reality that through this craving, some have wandered away from the faith. They've left Christ, left the gospel, left the truth. Philip Ryken said, either you love God and use money, or you love money and use God to get it. You cannot serve God and money. You're going to have to make your choice. You either love the one or hate the other one. Choose your God. Who will be your God? Naturally, if you reject God and his truth, the results are what we read in verse 9 when it says they fall into temptation and people are plunged into ruin and destruction. The word plunge in another context means sink, like a boat sinking. That's the picture. Someone that wants to be rich are sinking. They will destroy themselves. They will drown in hell. There will be many, many rich people in hell. And they would gladly trade millions of their money for just one breath of fresh air, which you are enjoying right now. Jesus said, what does it profit a man if you gain the whole world, but you forfeit your soul? It is described as piercing yourselves, literally impaling yourself, like Saul leaning on your own sword. And if you doubt me still, Consider the Bible's history. Look at Solomon in all of his riches. What, what did he say at the end of his life? Vanity of vanities. Look at Achan, who coveted silver, and when he took it, he, it cost him his family's life. Look at Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament because of their greed, lied, and so they died on the same day. Look at the rich man and Lazarus. How gladly that rich man would have traded his money to be saved. Look at Judas Iscariot who betrayed our Lord for 30 pieces of silver and at the end killed himself. That's the end of greed and covetousness and wanting more. 
it just does not satisfy. It's like drinking seawater. If you drink it, it just leaves you thirstier. It doesn't fill you up. So, beloved, it is not worth it. But Christ is worth it. He's like the treasure in a field that a man found and in his joy goes and sells everything he has to have that field, to have Christ. So come to him. Find your joy in him. Here are the marks set before us. False teachers will be heterodox in their theology, arrogant, divisive, and covetous. Let us love and embrace the truth of God's word and follow Christ and desire godliness with contentment, for that is great gain. Let's pray together. Father, only you can do the surgery that our hearts need to be changed, to be set free from the love and the craving for money and more possessions. Lord, turn our eyes away from selfish gain. and Turn our eyes to Christ. May we look full into his beautiful face. Lord, in him we find the bread of life, the living water, the only person that can satisfy us both now and for all of eternity. And then, Lord, may we use our money to show that you are our God. So, Father, please protect us from false teaching. Protect me and protect this church as well, Lord, from ever deviating from the sound words of Jesus or the teaching that accords with godliness. May our hearts be, um, cling to the truth, cling to your word, and so follow you all the days of our lives. Thank you that you are faithful and that you will keep us. You are our good shepherd. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.